0: Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 51 of the Hyperthesis podcast. Today we are joined by a special guest. Uh, And to begin, hi everyone, I'm Patrick. I'm Feely. I'm Liam.
1: And I'm Denise.
0: So, as you heard from our introduction, we have a special guest on today who will be talking to during our main topic uh, on some very interesting physics. Uh, so, just as a quick introduction to our guest, uh, we have Denise Comp, uh, who is a physicist and PhD student working at McMaster University. Uh, she actually works for the same supervisor as um, Josh, who was a previous episode on this podcast uh, or a previous guest. On this podcast, so go ahead and listen to that episode too. Um, so Denise studies dynamical instabilities and quantum self-trapping, which occur in atomic Bose-Einstein condensates confined within rotating toroidal traps. That's a mouthful. We'll be delving into that a lot more uh, pretty soon. But she also does other related research in Bose-Einstein condensates and completed her Bachelor of Science and Master of Science. Uh, at the University of Hamburg, where she studied dynamics and correlated systems and condensed matter theory. Now, before we delve into what all that means and your past research and your current research, uh, as well as possibly some future aspirations, uh, does anyone have any introductory topics to discuss?
2: Yes, I do. Um, And just to also say, me, Denise, and Josh all work in the same group. So we all work for Good old Duncan Odell. For today, um, the intro topic, I wanted to focus on BECs um, because that is what you study, Denise. So you're, feel free to comment on this and give your thoughts and tell us if we're wrong on something. Um,
1: <laughs> I will. So it's good.
2: <laughs> but I found this paper called Bose Einstein Condensates as Gravitational Wave Detectors.
1: Did you say you find it or did I find it?
2: Yeah. So I think you found it and told me about it, actually. <laughs> Um, I can't remember, but I'm sure you did because last night we were talking and you said that Duncan kind of wants you to read into this a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I, I realized, oh, you, you must have told me about this paper at some point. I just forgot.
1: So yeah, I will use your summary now to present to Duncan yes. later.
2: Well, I didn't read any of the math, but that's excellent. You go for it. So I, I, I quickly scanned through this paper. I didn't replicate anything or I didn't go through the math too much because it's, um, it's it's like the quantum mechanics of a Bose-Einstein condensate, but now in curved space-time. So it, it gets complicated fairly fast.
3: I think we should get into a little bit of BECs, like what they are. Just a refresher for, for those who don't know or forget, um, like maybe some of us may have forgotten about BECs. Um, or what I know, just from mech perspective, I guess a little bit of quantum perspective, is that it's a, it's a special state of matter that basically... For bosons specifically, that are basically are, the majority of the particle would be in the same state, the, the ground state per se, and that is the definition of BC, so not the mathematical definition, but that was kind of what I understand a bit because there's like a clear phase transition threshold that happens at low temperature that makes everything. Well, not most of the particle, almost all particles, go into a ground state because higher energy states are not available.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, you take these bosons, these integer spin particles, you make them really cold, and they all kind of bunch together in the lowest energy state. So you get this kind of macroscopic quantum gas of stuff, and there's, you can do it with other things too. But that, and we, we've talked about. BECs a whole bunch. I think the first episode we did probably we talked about BECs and, but yeah, that that's the gist of it. Um, so I I was interested in this paper. Um, this was published in twenty nineteen in the Journal of Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics by Matthew Robbins, uh, Nyesh um, F. Shorty. I might have pronounced that horribly. I apologize, and Robert Mann. Um. I actually met, I think, I don't know if you did, Denise, but I met Robert Mann once or twice. He's a big name in theoretical physics, and he works at Perimeter Institute in Waterloo, actually. Um, But anyway, so I think in the last, like, five to six episodes, we've talked a lot about gravitational waves and these gravitational wave detectors. Um, So without spending too much time talking about kind of going through all of it again, uh, the gist of it is that There's this nanohertz project, which is fairly new, and they observed um, gravitational waves by looking at pulsar stars in our own Milky Way galaxy. Um, And these were very low frequency gravitational waves. They're thinking like the nanohertz range, because that's the name of it. Um, And the other big gravitational wave detector is LIGO, which is this very, very large interferometer experiment um that measures gravitational waves in the kind of 100 to 300 hertz range and this was big back in 2015 so both of these experimental setups are very expensive and large and um, large scale i guess and so for for the, the LIGO it's this massive place and there's so much money and technology goes into these mirrors and you have to measure distances a change in distance of like one one thousandth of a proton so it's pretty crazy stuff and this nanohertz experiment you need um radio telescopes but there's only a few of them on the earth that they can use so i was very interested when i saw or when i guess denise suggested this paper to me saying that like in a bec you could potentially observe gravitational wave signals because Compared to these large-scale experiments, um, the size and cost of making a BEC in a lab is like very, very small. If you could do this, every university would have their own gravitational wave detector. If you could do this with a BEC, these ultra-cold atom experimentalists are wild. They they're very good at what they do, and they can do a lot of stuff with these ultra-cold gases.
3: I never knew like the scale of experimental BECs like how big of BECs can you make like is it in terms of like moles or is it like you know like a, sh- a whole full little chamber of like a foot wide or do the making like trapped in a crystal like super small i don't know like how how big of how massive of BECs can you make
2: i think usually i mean denise i don't know if you have some specific experiments in mind but i think they're pretty small. So like you, imag- you you can imagine this big chamber of gas, but it's not very big. It's very tiny. It's like millimeters or mi- even it's like micrometers to millimeters big. Um and there's probably like anywhere from a thousand to a few 10,000 particles that make up these BECs at least in the experiments I've looked at. I don't know, Denise, if you've seen any papers that talk about that or not.
1: Uh yeah, I mean I work with those uh toroidal trap BCs basically and those traps are usually around like 40 micrometers or 60 micrometers in diameter. They're really small. Um they probably have like I don't know 500,000 particles. Ooh, or so
2: that, that's a good amount.
1: Yeah. But it's small. Yeah. That's that's just yeah. It's a small thing for sure.
3: Yeah, here's the thing, Liam. You say good amount, but to me, five hundred thousand is like nothing. (laughs) Yeah, I would you made of nothing.
2: Yeah, you think of like chemistry and like Avogadro's number, ten to the twenty-three. It's very small compared to that. But all the all the BEC experiments I deal with, they they use. They're like, oh, we use ten thousand rubidium atoms or something like that. So five hundred thousand is much larger than ten thousand.
3: Well, it makes sense because quantum effects are really hard to control. Right? You have to be super precise and you have things that are, they are like ex- exhibit quantum effects, just purely quantum effects. It's really hard to do when you have like a lot of kinetic energy or with like a lot of more particles. And I don't know how you're going to like consistently control that either. I'm not an experimentalist, right? I have no idea what techniques you use to create the BECs as well. I mean, like it's E- probably easier to create like let's say super cooled water or super cool argon or those stuff. Like, that's why they can make it um, if, they don't, if they don't need like quantum effects, like ultra cold stuff.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna go try and stay back on topic, um, so we don't run out of time. But I think the ultra cold people are very good at making these gases very cold. They just fire a bunch of lasers and magnetic fields at these gases, and they can get them to like the nano kelvin range. Um, they use laser cooling and kind of magnetic evaporation cooling, and there's all these other things. I don't know the exact details of all of them. Um, but back to this gravitational wave detection and BECs. I just thought it, if you if they if if you can do it, it saves a lot of money essentially and a lot of time. And anyone you could create like a first, you could create like an undergraduate physics lab or something where you have a BEC prepared and you measure a gravitational wave signal in it or something like, obviously that's a long way down the road, but it would be kind of cool. So the paper, um, it's not the first to have proposed using ultracold gases or BECs to detect gravitational waves. There were some other ones, but it kind of built upon those ideas and kind of gener- generalized them a bit more it gave this theoretical model about how a BEC would be affected by a gravitational wave. So you had to do a BEC and curved space time calculation, which I did not go through um, because BECs are very quantum and then curved space time is very GR. So I guess they just kind of like coupled them together um, and then saw what happened. And their conclusion basically was that um, the current using the best most modern BEC parameters and optimized setups and whatever, you you can't observe them in a, you can't observe gravitational wave signals in a BEC. Um, and the way they did that is they said, how, how would you detect the signal in a BEC? You would use what are called squeezed states, which is something that we could talk about for a long time. Um, but the idea is that Heisenberg uncertainties, the, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle of quantum mechanics basically says that if you measure you you can't know everything about some quantum particle at the same time. For example, like if you know the position of a particle really well, then you can't know its momentum at all, very well at all. There's this huge uncertainty in it, and vice versa. So a squeeze state is exactly that. It's you squeeze your precision on one of these conjugate variables really really small. So for example, you could know the position of this particle super super well, and you but what what it does is it kind of like creates this huge uncertainty in your velocity or momentum and so those are called squeeze states in quantum mechanics and somehow in these BEC setups um, sound waves through the BEC or these like excitations in the condensate you can create them to be squeeze states somehow I don't really know experimentally how that works but if you can, they, they basically said that currently we can't detect these gravitational wave signals in a BEC, but if you can get really, really, really squeezed, more squeezed, squeezed states, um, then the way they react to the gravitational waves would be measurable. That was kind of like the overall gist of the paper. And one thing they're focusing on in this paper is they want to detect gravitational waves in the kilohertz range. So like a few thousand Hertz. Um. Probably because there's no gravitational wave detectors that do that now, and because somehow they claim that if you can detect gravitational waves in this frequency range, you can learn about different types of stars. Like you can learn more about the insides of neutron stars or things like that, um, because those are topics that people don't know a lot about at the moment. You can put kind of derived conditions that these stars would have to obey, and you can learn some physics about them
1: super question uh do you know the range for lego
2: yeah about like 100 to 300 hertz so pretty not 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 crazy um so this this new ones these new ones would be about like an order of magnitude higher so like a thousand to three thousand or something like that maybe and then in this paper there's a lot of stuff they didn't talk about there's a, they made a lot of approximations as theorists do um so they didn't use any particular experimental setup. So additionally you could study how trapping the Bose-Einstein condensate with specific geometries would help improve the sensitivity, um, how nonlinear dispersive effects would come in in inhomogeneities in the condensate, the presence of vortices, finite temperature effects and so on. So it it was kind of like a preliminary minimal model work, but it to me it looks like it's promising. You could actually probably do it in BECs um, we just need some more time and some more studies into this and how to get more tightly squeezed states.
0: Well, that's a a very interesting concept, and it will be very interesting if we can actually use it and apply it in the future, um, especially with the recent uh, work coming out from, uh, is it Nanograv, I think? Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's
2: the one I said earlier. Yeah, yeah,
0: so uh, very interesting. But uh, in the interest of time, we will move on to our main topic, uh, which is about your work, Denise. Uh, so, you are a business studying BEC. So, um, what do you do exactly?
1: <laughs> That's an excellent question that my mom asks me every time we have dinner together. Um, and I still struggle to summarize it quickly, but I'll try my best. So, I started my project uh, looking very closely at instabilities. Um, so, basically, we model a BEC close to an instability and we're looking for You know, any kind of universal features that we can find. And some of those are, um, catastrophes, which I will talk about later. Maybe if we get there and a macroscopic self trapping, which you've already mentioned earlier. Um, right. So these instabilities usually occur like close to bifurcations and bifurcations are where your classical, uh, field theory kind of predicts that multiple or one solution appears or disappears. Um, Exactly. So those are the bifurcations. And an example for that is um, if you have a BC and a double well, I'm sure at least someone has talked to you about this. If you had Josh here, if you had Liam here. yeah. (laughs) So just a quick uh, recap. So a BC and a double well is just this W-shaped potential. And you have a left well and a right well. And for the interest of this, they're perfectly symmetric. They're the same. Neither of them is energetically preferred. Um, But now you tune the interaction in your gas. So this condensate wants to clump together and to do so it has to pick either left or right it's pretty random but it has to pick one of the welds to clump together and that is like um, a symmetry breaking transition basically here and um, so from this one solution of it's equally and both welds at the same time it just kind of has to choose left or right so we have two solutions though that are possible um classically right quantum mechanically you could still have a superposition but uh Okay, so we have these new set of solutions appearing and uh, we refer to that as macroscopic self-trapping if one of them, like if if one mode is preferred over the other randomly. Um, Okay, so my system that I work in is a BC in a slowly rotating toroidal trap. So I basically just have a ring, I put my BC in there and I stir it around and I stir at a velocity that... um, is between two modes. Because I'm a theoretical physicist and I like to do things as simple as possible. I only look at two modes at a time. Um, my modes are either non-rotating or rotating. And I rotate my trap right in the middle between these two modes. So neither of them is preferred, just like in the double well. So it's a two-mode model.
3: Oh, uh, I think I've seen your poster before because I, I remember the word like toroidal. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a donut, right? Like a shape of like a donut. And just a little bit of, little about bifurcation. We talked about this before in this podcast, but I think this to me it's like a fork in a road, right? You're on a road and then you meet a fork. And in the more mathematical and physics term, like you said, there's one solution and now there are two possible solutions. And people call that type like bifurcation. And the theory that studies bifurcation is called a catastrophe theory, which Liam is super into.
2: Yes. We love bifurcations, which we've talked about before. So I want to go back to the double well. The double well, yeah, so imagine that you have like a bunch of, you have like a W shape, right? And then there's like a little, there's two little valleys in the W, one on the left, one on the right. And there's this like kind of intermediate hill in the middle that separates them, like the middle point in the W. Um, why is it that they want to clump together in the system? So you, you have one BEC, right? Not two. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so you have one Bose-Einstein condensate because sometimes in these experimental in these experiments you can like mix different types of BECs together and they do funny things. But so this right. is just one.
1: That's actually one of the next projects I'm planning with like two species of BEC and mm-hmm. uh, such a yeah. yeah.
2: trap. there's a million different things you can do mm-hmm. with these, right? It's wild. Oh but, yeah. So yeah. so you take these BEC you tune their interaction such that they want to clump together in one of these wells and they, they tunnel between the wells they do quantum tunneling between them right because there's this barrier that classically they can't overcome but quantum mechanically they can kind of teleport through um so I, are those attractive interactions then that they have you tune them yeah. to have yeah yeah so so BECs also i don't feel in patrick i don't know you think of particles like they come near each other and they bounce away from each other. They have repulsive interactions, but these ultra cold atomic systems, you can you can somehow tune them with lasers and magnetic fields so that they actually become attractive to one another. The particles move towards each oh, other. That's
3: not always true. We, we do molecular dynamics. We have something called Lennard jones potential, mm. usually Lennard-Jones
2: right
3: LJ six twelve. Where that's really common in molecular dynamics. But I have a question actually. Like, what motivates this type of investigation like why why are you curious about a double well like who cares
1: Ooh, <laughs> well the double well is do. just yeah it's it's a simple system right um it's just a two mode system it's easy to visualize um but just because it's two modes it doesn't mean it's boring or uninteresting um it's just really accessible i would say so my problem with the ring trap you can map onto a double well problem because it's also just a two mode thing um it's just a really nice system to play around with. It's like the toy version.
3: Is it not like already solved? I feel like when we do like uh I don't know like undergrad quantum we do like you know one inf- like one well and there might be like a two well system. So so is it like why is it make it like very difficult to solve in BECs compared to like a normal wave function in quantum mechanics?
1: I wouldn't say it's pro- like that much more difficult. I would just say that uh, there are some nice features that we know from other disciplines of physics, and it's kind of cool to see that they even appear in such simple systems like this, um, meaning that they're like, really universal. And then we investigate where do they come from um, and all that. So more of like a background information thing than actual uh, what's new, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, and, and these ultra-cold, systems feely you might be looking for like why are we studying this how is it gonna solve a problem and a lot of these ultra cold stuff it's like you're just studying it so you know what happens um and then later something comes out of it and I also duncan like he wants to connect everything to these universal universal features with catastrophe theory and stuff i'm not sure denise you might have a better answer i'm not <laughs> sure exactly like what the end goal is by studying this, but it's well, just the be- no it could be to just better ever. understand <laughs> it right yeah. yes
1: yeah for sure well,
3: are you looking through a uh, more quantum mechanic perspective or more like statistical mechanic perspective because a lot of things i know about becs are not quantum based like I, because i maybe because i do statistical stuff right like but are, are you more approached to like formulation through quantum field theory or the quantum mechanics rather than statistical stuff
1: that's a good question. It's kind of a mix of both. So my calculations are mostly classical because I'm, uh, I am I want to make my life not any harder than it has to be. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have quantum descriptions for all of this. So this is quantum mechanics. Yeah,
2: is one of one of the goals, too, is to, like, see what's different between the system with the quantum mechanics and classical systems, because mm-hmm. these double well systems, they're two mode systems. So it's in the left well, or the right well. And that's just a fan- two mode systems you can solve in principle exactly, right? Yeah. They have an exact solution. Um, and you can actually, I don't know if you can do it with yours, Denise, but I know like in all of our group meetings, you can map these things to like pen, to, to the mathematics that describes them is the same as like pendulums or mm-hmm. pendulums on a, oscillating pendulums or pizza pendulums or a pendulum, but the pivot point moves. They're all these wild different or like a double pendulum, depending on if it's chaotic or not.
1: Absolutely. And, yeah. and then
2: kind of like looking at like, all right, classically, it looks like a pendulum. But like, where does the quantum mechanics make things differ from or? Exactly. Stuff
1: like that. So just to hop on to the pendulum analogy. So uh, for a pendulum, you have some kind of momentum and you have some kind of position. And those are your uh, coordinates, basically. And in my system, when I have two modes, I would look at the population difference, which is uh, similar to the, I think, angle momentum, (laughs) and then the phase difference between these two modes or condensates in these two modes, uh, which is then the position. So I have similar descriptions, but it means different things, if that makes sense.
3: Well, uh, are these all analytical or are they like numerical?
1: It's both. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, to hop onto that actually, so when I solve my system classically, I uh, technically can choose like an angular momentum and an angular position and the world is fine. But if I want to do that quantum mechanically, I can't, right? Because Liam already touched on that earlier today. We can only know one of them and then the other one is really uncertain. And to mimic that kind of classically, I use something called a truncated Wigner approximation. In my mean field theory where i basically use a quantum state as an initial state so i i don't know fix my momentum and i leave my position completely unknown and then evolve my classical equations of motions and look at those trajectories and the dynamics of that and then i compare that to a quantum description and it actually is a really good overlap i would show you pictures but uh, I- i'm
2: gonna help. show them some pictures yeah. i'm gonna bring them up
3: well, so you mentioned that you're looking for your group specifically looking for like universal features so what mm-hmm. kind of analogous behavior have you found that you know related to other systems that you can talk about
1: um i mean there's a lot uh, i don't even know where to start but uh the simplest one um in my ring trap i would say it's really similar to squid which is um like a superconducting fluid uh in a ring So. And the main similarity to that is just that my angular momentum is quantized along this ring. Uh, which allows me to have just two modes, right? That so that's the whole point. So I have this two mode system that is kind of similar to squid and yeah.
2: So so in so yeah, the the ring system it's two mode and it's like kind of equivalent to the double well. So that's mm-hmm. one you're studying and you, you stir this B E C and this donut shape around. And so so your two mode approximation is just that this because this is all quantum, this rotating BEC can only have certain energy levels. Um, and you're only focusing on kinda like the two biggest ones, like the lowest two energy levels, right? Mm-hmm. That's your two mode approximation. There's other ones, but you're kinda you, you start it such that you only care about two of them. The other yeah. ones don't get excited as much, well, I think.
1: Technically you could use it between any two modes, but I choose the non rotating and the first mm-hmm. rotating. Because that's simple and it's nice hopefully to see in, a, in an experiment um because if everything is in the rotating mode you should see a vortex so that would be something visual to measure <laughs> actually
3: well, i think i know that bec's are not 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 directly related but a lot of temperature that bc occurs um happen coincide or sometimes really near superfluidity and those stuff right because for helium and such so is a specific reason that, um, people are interested in like BECs, in 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 those kind of trapping well, rather, oh, oh. I mean, I'm sure there are people who do like superfluids, but if they're really near, they must have influenced each other at some point, right? Like, oh, you want do you just want BEC that doesn't have like superfluid behavior? Do you all like basically do you model superfluidity in your system too?
1: Um. I would say yes, Um, so a flowing BEC has a lot in common with the superfluid, Um, so the way it shows in my um, theoretical experiment, I would say, is that I have to have some kind of disorder potential for my condensate to actually feel that I'm stirring it around. Like, If it was a superfluid and I have my ring and I just spin my ring. Uh, and there's no friction along the edges. My fluid would never know that we're spinning. So I have to physically like stir it like a coffee uh, in a circle in an experiment, they do that with a green laser in uh, theory, I just put in a uh, periodic potential,
2: <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, superfluids are these nice, cold things that have that I think I talk about them in my story today a little bit actually, but They have no friction for people who might not know. So a superfluid flowing through a tube it would never slow down because it doesn't lose any energy due to friction. Um, Or at least theoretically it doesn't. Maybe it loses a very, 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 very small amount. But I don't know.
3: Well, it's like superconductivity, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't lose um, energy.
2: Yeah, and DECs and superfluids are very you got to be careful because a lot of the time a bec is a superfluid and a superfluid is a bec but they don't they're not necessarily the same you can create becs which aren't superfluids and superfluids which aren't becs um but i think like helium four is an example of you can create a bose einstein condensate with that but also it's like partially a superfluid i don't quite know the details um but helium three is just a superfluid um, it, it has a different kind of thing happening with it.
3: So I think I should get into a more different field of queries that I think are easier to answer. Um, so really, so you are doing very theoretical, hardcore um, investigation, <laughs> which uh, through a lot of people is like that. Even for me, you know, it's, it's really a lot of analytical stuff or solving equations. So what got you in- interested in this? I know you did, um, there's um your physics in undergraduate and masters in Germany too. Like but what really got you into physics? I had the reason to ask because like different guests have different stories and it's interesting to hear why each person go into physics because it's such a niche feel, right? Like not many people go into physics. So what is your story?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I love hearing those stories from everyone too. Um I don't know. I guess everyone says that. (laughs) It just kind of happens. But uh, I, even as a kid, I always liked math and I liked logic and patterns. And that's just how my brain is wired. And uh, that's okay. Um, I'm good at this and not so good at other things. Um, Would be bad if we all had the same talents. But uh, yeah, I always gravitated towards like these logic-based things. So when I learned languages, I learned Latin because that's the math like the most math-like language out there that i can think of um yeah and then uh, in high school we had to pick a major and um, i picked physics because it was the only science one they had there and it's also arguably the best science out there um so yeah Amazing. i was right i was always between math and physics but i couldn't major in math so um i did physics in high school and then i continued in university i was like just general physics so there was experimental stuff to it theoretical stuff to it everything around um but i always just liked the theory things so i'm not really good at like building things with my hand and fidgeting around with lasers so that stressed me out
3: was the atmosphere like in Germany? Like because I know a lot of like we talk about extensively how there's a lot of disdain in like physics in like maybe like growing up and like oh physics is like you know you know boring and stuff like was it like and en- like were people like children encouraged to study physics in Germany or it's like was do you find any difference at all like when you ca- when you came to Canada?
1: Um, that's a tough question. I feel like the whole university thing is completely different. Here in, I would say, all the Americas (laughs) um, or North America. It's, uh, you don't have to go to university in Germany. You don't even have to do high school and you still get a job and you are still a valid member of society and nobody looks at you weird. So I'm the first one in my family to even finish high school uh, and go to university. I'm still in university. My parents are looking at me like, you should get a job. so, first of all, just going to university is not necessarily the goal for all like Germans. But if you go to university, you probably go for business or something. So physics isn't necessarily the thing your parents would like you to see. And even though most famous physicists are German, I say that like that, but a lot of them, <laughs> um,
2: I'd you say can most tell. Of them.
1: Right, because most of the important words in physics are also in German. So even though I did my master's and now my PhD in English, like the key words are always in German. Um, so I feel like there's some historical uh, tendency for Germans to do physics. I don't know.
2: <laughs> it's it's kind of funny because sometimes like Duncan or people in our group will see these old papers by like, like Einstein and all these like mm-hmm. German... People, German speaking people, that are like, Denise, can you like translate this paragraph (laughs) or something? It's really funny.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, it's not unheard of of uh, German people to go into physics. That's all I'm saying. Um, But uh, yeah, it's more so unheard of of women going into theoretical physics, which bothers me the most. Um, So that's why I'm still here and I'm still going. So
3: in terms of just physics too, I know a lot of people are interested in physics going to experimental, but you know why you choose this very, You know, like intense, hardcore theoretical stuff. Like, what, what, what? How? When do you know you're you are not experimentalist? Because one could see themselves, and you know, you, I'd rather do experiments, do stuff, and they're equally important. I find.
1: Mm-hmm yeah I don't know. So we had a lot of um experiments at my school in Germany, so we have this laser institute there, and we got lots of accelerators, so particles physics is huge. so there's a lot of things you can do, but I feel like it's it was too close to an engineering for me. um again, I'm not really good at hand eye coordination, <laughs> and like trying to build things is just it stressed me out, and uh, you can't work generally in the lab, but that's a side note. Um I I don't know. I just always liked just sitting at my computer and doing it from home. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, so I started with just physics, but I just kinda slid into the theoretical side of things. It was just more natural to me.
2: I don't know about Patrick, but yeah I think I kinda like always knew that experiments were i i i I think i like them more now than i did um, when i was younger like even in high school i kind of knew that like if i ever went into science i would be like a theory guy and not a experiment guy i don't know patrick if you knew when you were younger or what i mean yeah i
0: really liked physics wasn't the best at math but like building and testing things and i think that's where my joy of When I was doing uh, physics, I was doing experimental physics, and so it was fun to actually build the systems in a rigorous way in which that you uh, try and eliminate as much error as possible while maximizing your signal of whatever you're trying to measure. So I really enjoyed that part of somewhat tediousness, but also the satisfying thing of seeing, okay, you built this, and then you get to see results, and then essentially... Do something from the beginning to the end, which was always satisfying.
1: I have the utmost respect for that. Like, you guys do all of it basically. Like, you have to know the theory, you have to build it, you have to know what to look for. So, we're like almost lazy on that side. <laughs> yes.
2: um,
1: but uh, so, just on that note, my brother is in engineering, um, but it's not necessarily a university thing in Germany again. So, he was a, an electrical engineer for airplanes. And um so he's really good at this like hands-on stuff and he can build things and fix things and it's incredible and I wish I had that ability. <laughs> but um I don't know, it's kinda of sometimes they complement each other that way, right? So somebody just likes to build things and somebody just wants to think about it uh in the middle of the night.
3: Yeah, I find it my, my brother engineer, my father is engineer and I Knew early on didn't want to be engineering. I used to, you know, I think we as Liam, my set, right, you want to do like pure theory. But um, my former supervisor opened up my world to computational stuff, and I'm sure you like these days it's so hard to just do pen and paper. Almost impossible to do like a uh, the cutting edge research just pen and paper, right? So that's why I think you also use a lot of computational package or analytical package to solve them. So, um. Do you see yourself more like pen and paper person or you just also love the computers and stuff now?
1: Mm, I would say the first thing I do is I write things out on like a blackboard probably. You would be surprised how many times Liam and I stand in our office and just are covered in chalk and like draw pictures on the blackboard. Um, but yeah, just to check something quickly, I would I would write a code. Yeah, <laughs> too lazy for that to do by hand.
3: Um, mm-hmm. yeah i know some people have notes like like on their tablet and the thing. i have mine in like a notebook anyway i actually write things down i don't know if you're one of the, us where who, who love fountain pens but <laughs>
1: i do <laughs> i really do um i write things down all the time on pen and paper and then i lose the papers and then i start from the beginning
2: i feel like theoretical physics is just at least for me it's just like drawing pictures and ignoring as many things as you can <laughs> without losing the physics. Yeah, like simplifying. You to, yeah, if you had to summarize theoretical physics, it's like, how much can we ignore before we lose out on what we're trying to learn about?
3: Well, I think the next question is uh, routine. Is, I think it's became routine question for all our guests now. So, are we asked about your hopes and dreams? So, it's not exactly who you 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 know what job or not now it's about like who you see yourself being who you want to be you know or what's the ideal you're hoping for in your career and your life moving forward Uh, if you could talk about that
1: that's a loaded question yeah um i have many hopes and dreams uh but yeah to be modest right um I think uh, I really enjoy staying in research and I think I want to do that for the rest of my life, just doing research. But I'm surprised at how much I like the teaching part of this. I guess part of your PhD, your TAing and your teaching, and it's actually really fun. And I do like uh, the influence I have on the younger generations and to represent too, because that's kind of what I was missing when I went to university. You never had um, like a like a female physicist to look up to that way, other than obviously, you know, Marie Curie, but she's been dead for a minute. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, you guys all know Donna Strickland, right? So that was a really big thing for, for me to see, like her in her super gorgeous red dress, winning the Nobel Prize. What a badass move. Uh, I wanna be that person. I don't know if I'm smart enough to be that person, but that's my dream. If I may dream.
2: (laughs) One thing I've noticed, I think we really maybe briefly mentioned this like a few minutes ago, but there's not a lot of women in theoretical physics. Like even at McMaster, all the women in physics, most of them are experimental. Or astrophysics. Or astrophysics, which you can, is kind of experimental, but it's more so just like data analysis and observation. It's like they they do they use data from an experiment, so you can argue it's kind of experimental. But I'm trying to think like who are the even at McMaster? I can only think of you at the moment for yeah, the woman I mean, we in theoretical Annie, our
1: undergrad, but
2: yes, yes. But I'm, I'm about, talking about like PhD students, yeah. no. right? Like the whole department. You're the only PhD theoretical physics person I can think of who's a woman. Isn't so that sad? That's I know, sad. and i I so wonder that's why why, here. Yeah. <laughs> i I wonder why that is why is it that Because, like woman in physics has always been a problem because well, getting women into physics, not woman in physics um, <laughs> but why why do they always go towards the experimental side? what is going on there? I don't know,
1: I don't know either i um it's not me, I can't answer that question for you. <laughs>
3: Oh, at right. least you know what you want to do, right? And and that that is v- difficult for a lot of people to figure out what they want to do. There's you still talk to kids, not kids, you know, like, um, adolescents, you know, like nineteen twenty. Some of them go to university and they have still no idea what to do. So it's a age long question about life and meaning of life. Which you know, if we're gonna talk philosophy, I think is this conversation is gonna go a different direction.
1: Of course.
3: So. Do you see yourself as a professor or more like a a research scientist then?
1: I don't know. I feel like that kind of depends on the location too. If I could pick where to go, I would totally become a professor. But I feel like it's more like you have to go where there's a position available. And I think moving across the Atlantic Ocean to come here, that's, that's enough moving for me in a lifetime um i think like i I reached my limits if i find something close by i will totally pursue that but i'm open for for other options
2: i I wanted to quickly not spend too much time on it but the whole north america kind of you know everyone at least in like canada right everyone gets pressured or at least in ontario some of the other provinces are better for it but you're kind of like expected to go to university if people tell you your whole life like oh, well, if you want to be successful you got to go to university and it's just so different over here compared to i guess germany and probably other places in europe too right because i don't think everyone should go to university universities are pretty like specific place to be it's not for everyone um if you want to be super academic then yeah it's great but if you want to do like real world things Maybe it's not so great, but it's. I think it's really bad when all these people get pressured into it, you know?
1: Yeah, we f- refer to that as the inflation of degrees, because <laughs> like your undergrad degree is probably worthless compared to if you want to work in Germany and you have an undergrad degree, you can actually get a really, really, really good job. Um, but on that note, also, university is free in most of Europe. So it's wild to me that you're expected here to start your career in like huge debt, or your parents have to work really hard to afford this for you. And I think education should just be accessible. Um, and maybe that's how I grew up. So I never thought twice about if I want to go to university or not because I could afford it because it's free. Here, I don't know if my parents could have sent me to university.
3: At least graduate programs are funded, at least in science, in physics, for example, right? So... I was thinking the same too. How can I afford to do master and PhD if it's not funded? And then like, sh- like should it be funded? Should it there be tuition? I think there's long debate about it in North America where, you well, know, so like, how would you implement free education? It's another can of worms.
1: Yeah, well, if you don't force everyone to go to university, you have to pay way less if you just pay for the few that actually want to go. It's weird. I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's probably an easy solution, but changing a system is really difficult.
3: Well, sounds like we got to bring an education expert guest at some point to chat about this. <laughs> well, I've
2: been trying to get someone who does like academic policy on, but she's a busy human. So maybe one day.
0: Anyway, um, well, I think that's a nice kind of natural end to our uh, discussion about your research and, and life and experiences. Do you have any final things to say? Before we wrap up,
1: (laughs) Uh, any last words? Um, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, Not much, but if you have more questions about my research, I'm always happy to talk uh, even more. We just kind of touched the surface. There's so much more. If you want to see cool pictures, um, reach out. Uh, I know you guys are on Instagram and anywhere. uh, So am I. but yeah, I'm uh, always happy to chat and inspire and uh, criticize. So let me know.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us. And for those interested in reaching out to you, what? how can they contact you?
1: Well, the easiest is probably email, just uh, whatever McMaster email. It's all on the websites everywhere you can find. Um, but yeah, or Facebook, Instagram. It's always just my name. Same thing. You can find me anywhere. Or just listen to the high heels in the hallway. You'll find me too.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) So there you are. Uh, If you have any questions, go to McMaster and just keep an ear to the floor. (laughs) Um, And if you do have any questions uh, for any of us, uh, we can also forward them to Denise. Uh, You can contact us through email. We're hyperthesispodcast at gmail.com. We do also have Instagram, as Denise mentioned. So feel free to check us out. We have some spicy memes, hopefully, as well as updates for when episodes come out, uh, or if they're delayed, which has happened a couple times. So keep an eye on our Instagram, but give us a follow, a like, send us a DM if you are an expert in your field, and you would also like to be a guest on our show. Uh, We are more than happy to have you as a guest, whether you're a full tenured professor or a grad student, just kind of getting started out in your journey. Uh, So you can send us a DM, email us, uh, you can also listen to us wherever you find your podcasts, whether it's Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Audible. We're pretty much on any podcasting service. Uh, if your podcasting service does offer it, leave us a review, follow us, do whatever you need to do. And also feel free to share us. Um, and finally, uh, we are based out of Spotify. Uh, so go check us out on there. Uh, I think that's where our website is based too. Uh, And just, yeah, um, if you, again, have any questions, contact us in whatever way you would like. And so to wrap up uh, our episode talking about generally Bose-Einstein condensates and what they can be used for and Denise's research, we have a story from Liam.
2: Yes. So I'm going to talk about the history of Bose-Einstein condensate experiments. And there's a lot of them, so I'm not going to talk about all of them, of course. Um, but more so just a very quick summary of some of the beginning ones. Because boson sign condensation, we, in a previous episode, I think it was 47, we talked a little bit, I think Feely talked a little bit about the history of bosons. So these particles that have integer values of spin, and spin is some quantum property. But today I want to get into the more experimental side of the history, because Theoretically, Bose-Einstein condensates have been around for a long time, but they weren't experimentally realized until um, pretty recently as far as physics goes. So this experimental history starts with superfluids, which we talked about a little bit. Um, back in 1938, um, Kapitza, who's fam- Kapitza um, his first name, I have no idea how to pronounce it. It's like P-Y-O-T-R. Peter? Peter, oh, I see. It's just a funny way to spell it. But <laughs> that version of Peter, um, Peter, Kapitza, John Allen, and Don Meisner were all kind of names in physics. There's this thing called the Meisner effect in the Kapitza pendulum. And I forget what John Allen did, but I think he did something. Um, they discovered that helium 4 became a new kind of fluid at temperatures less than 2.17 Kelvin. So it's very cold. Um, so they they behaved like what are we now call superfluids, and they display these interesting properties such as zero viscosity. so so no friction. um they move without losing energy. And the existence of quantized vortices. So imagine you have like a whirlpool in your bathtub, except now it can only spin with certain specific um, angular velocities, essentially. So at first it was quickly believed that the superfluidity was kind of partially due to Bose-Einstein condensation of the liquid itself, but superfluid helium four is a liquid and not a gas. Where all, all this Bose-Einstein condensate um, theory from before was for these weakly, these very dilute weakly interacting gases. Um, superfluid helium has much stronger interactions between the atoms and the gas would, so the original theory of Bose-Einstein condensation um, doesn't did not fit. But despite this, physicists later found that Bose-Einstein condensation actually was this, it played a fundamental role to the superfluid properties of helium 4. Um, and like we mentioned earlier, not all superfluids are Bose-Einstein condensates, and not all Bose-Einstein condensates are superfluids. Um, for example, helium 3 a super, can become a superfluid at a very low temperature. Um, but it's actually, helium 3 is a fermion, not a boson. Um, but yet it still displays this superfluidic Phase behavior at lower temperatures. And this is actually related to the formation of these things called bosonic Cooper pairs, um, but I'm not going to get into that. So many, many years later, um, the first pure kind of gaseous Bose Einstein condensate was created by Eric Cornell and Carl Weiman, um, or Weiman, I'm not sure. And they were co workers at the University of Colorado, and they created this Bose Einstein condensate on. June 5th 1995 where they cooled a dilute gas of approximately 2000 rubidium-87 atoms to below 170 nano Kelvin using laser cooling and magnetic um, evaporation cooling so that's pretty cold um and rubidium-87 is one of these Bose-Einstein condensate favorites so a lot of BECs are made with rubidium-87 because um, it has these specific properties that allow it to be cooled quite well Um, Four months later, someone by the name of Wolfgang um, Ketterl, Ketterl, I think, Wolfgang Ketterl and colleagues at MIT, they created a Bose-Einstein condensate in sodium-23. And this condensate had way more atoms than Cornell's and Weyman's um, condensate, allowing for important results, such as the observation of quantum mechanical interference between two different condensates. So in other words, kind of macroscopic quantum interference. Um, So the three of them, Cornell, Weeman, and um, Ketterl, they they shared the 2001 Nobel Prize in physics for their achievement, which I think we might have talked about before, actually, specifically, like, this BEC Nobel Prize. Around the same time as well, a group led by Randall um, Hewlett at Rice University announced that they created a condensate out of lithium atoms, but they also found that lithium has um, attractive interaction so the particles instead of repelling each other um, they pull each other together and because of this the condensate actually turned out to be unstable and would quickly collapse so unfortunately there was this race for the nobel prize everyone wanted to create a bec first they chose the wrong element essentially and didn't share the nobel prize but they had really important results they found that you could get these attractive interactions And they were actually able to show that you could stabilize this condensate um, by confinement quantum pressures um, for up to about a thousand atoms. So it was also very important work in this ultra cold field, even though they unfortunately did not share the Nobel Prize because they picked the wrong element um, by accident. So since then, we've talked about atomic Bose Einstein condensates a lot. But you can also. Create this in many other um, systems. So since then, it's been created in all these other atomic species. Um, they've even created BECs of molecules, although I'm not sure which molecules. Um, you can create Bose-Einstein condensates out of quasi-particles. Quasi-particles are these collections of particles that interact in such a way that they behave like a more macroscopic, bigger particle. Um, for example, like sound waves, you can model as quasi-particles because it's a bunch of individual particles vibrating together. But you can send out like a sound wave like a wave packet um, and it behaves like a particle itself so they've created Bose-Einstein condensates out of different types of quasi particles and even out of photons so they made boson einstein condensates of light because light um, photons are bosons you can do that although that's something i want to talk about in the future i won't get into that now um and finally there's very recently actually in 2022 there was a a more kind of big innovation in this field. Uh, The Cold Atom Laboratory Experiment, which was on board the International Space Station in 2022, successfully created a Bose-Einstein condensate of rubidium atoms um, and and observed them for over one second in zero gravity. So one second doesn't sound like very long, but for Bose-Einstein condensates, um, you kind of observe these things on the microsecond and even millisecond range. So one second is a very long time. It gives you plenty of time to see what's happening and take measurements. So what the astronauts found, um, and one thing people often forget is that astronauts are, most of the time, they're actually scientists. You get a lot of physicists and things like that who become astronauts. So they do a lot of experiments up there, it turns out, in these microgravity environments to see how it differs from on um, Earth's surface where we have gravity to deal with. And what they found, it was actually kind of like a proof of concept, creating this BEC in zero gravity, but it worked really well in that they actually found that um, about half the atoms which formed, they formed into this kind of magnetically insensitive halo-like cloud around the main body of the BEC. So you get this like half the atoms form this halo around the um, primary BEC, which I don't know, but I'm guessing that was predicted many years before they were able to test it. Um, I bet the theory people kind of sat down did this calculation what does a BEC look like in zero gravity and were able to predict that long before the experiment was done but i'm not sure that needs citation needed
3: well i don't think when we do BEC in theory we ever include gravity in in the first place we, if you do like 2D BECs right
2: yeah yeah you wouldn't but if you want the if you want to do something in an experiment you always need to include gravity you just put in a linear potential your gravitational potential but yes, they, they basically, if you do the theory for like a B, C, and 2D, so you flatten it to two dimensions and you don't include gravity, you I'm assuming you'd see this effect. I don't know. I, I only ever work with 1D Bose-Einstein condensates, so you can find them into roughly like one dimension, quasi one dimension, um, because I am a theorist, and one dimensions are wonderful. One dimension is wonderful. But so that that's kind of like... A very rough history of the experimental um, side of Bose-Einstein condensates, and of course I skipped many, 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 many things. But the kind of take-home message from that, and also today's episode, is that a lot of work has gone into kind of experimentally and theoretically studying Bose-Einstein condensates over the last thirty-ish years, or even closer to one hundred years, on the theoretical side. And there's still a lot of people who study these and Trying to figure out what we can learn about different states of matter quantum mechanics interactions with curved space time all kinds of different things so to me Bose-Einstein condensates they're one of those things where a lot of people studied them and there weren't immediate applications to you to say like the real world but I think in the future there'll be many many more popping up um, we have such good control and by we I mean the experimentalists over these Bose-Einstein condensates, that I think they have some potential to be used as detectors and um, other applications as well.
3: One notable uh, the BEC is that you know it's another state of matter, technically, right? So when people learn about plasma, maybe it was like, oh, don't know what to do with it. And now we found out a lot of things are plasmas, and you know, whole whole view of plasma physics maybe we will find things in space that are bec's that you know things are applicable to
0: that becomes widely used who knows
2: yeah i'm not sure of how that would work but maybe
0: well thank you for that uh lovely history of becs and experiments much appreciated from the experimental side uh and with that that's our episode so thank you very much again denise for joining us. And again, if you have any questions for her, feel free to contact her. Um, But thank you for joining and bye, everyone.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Bye.
0: Take care. See ya.